Welcome to the Brain Health Revolution podcast with your hosts, Aisha and Dean Sherzai. This episode is about vascular cognitive impairment and vascular dementia, and it was broadcasted live to our NeuroAcademy audience, and we had a live Q&A session at the end. NeuroAcademy is a membership-based online environment where you'll have access to resources to achieve optimal health, a better, sharper memory, and prevent cognitive decline. You will have access to monthly live Q&A sessions, live cooking sessions, live podcasts such as this one, and Q&A with remarkable health leaders, ongoing on-demand courses on prevention of neurological diseases, expanding the course to evidence-based nutrition and cooking, neurocoaching, anxiety, and many other courses on various topics related to brain health. You will be able to get CE or CME credits if you're interested and also receive certification after taking the course. Join us by visiting neuroacademy.com. And now let's listen to the episode. Thank you so much for joining us today. Jim is a 56-year-old truck driver. He has been driving trucks for the last 20 years and has only seen his primary care physician a handful of times during that period and was told that he had borderline high blood pressure at some point and that he needed to keep an eye on it and borderline diabetes, but didn't need medication for it yet. Although he was a high school athlete, over the last 20 years, he has gained nearly 70 pounds. He has three grown children, but does not get to see them very often and lives with his girlfriend. In the last few years, he had a couple of falls, has had two occasions where he felt lightheaded, and one episode which lasted a few minutes where he actually lost vision in his left eye. It was as if a curtain came down and it just kind of gradually went back up. He didn't really seek any medical help for that. He has also had more frequent headaches, dull headaches on the top of his head, which he never had before. But yesterday, he had an episode where while he was driving his truck, he couldn't remember where he was going for about 20 minutes or so, as if he was in a fog. It had happened to him in the past, but it never was this long. And it usually went away on its own, and he figured out the path within a few minutes. But this was different. This really scared him. When he spoke with his family, they insisted that he should see a doctor and go to the emergency room. So he finally made up his mind to go to the emergency room because his doctor couldn't see him for the next three weeks. He went there. The doctors received him rather quickly, especially when he said that he had memory problems and that he had loss of vision at some point. In the emergency room, um, they did a lot of work up on him uh, and he was admitted to get his tests done. During these tests, they found out that his glucose levels were very high. At that point, his glucose level, and he was fasting, was 215. His hemoglobin A1C, which is a measure of glucose metabolism for you know three to six months, was 8.6. His blood pressure was 180 over 100. His total cholesterol was 275. His LDL cholesterol, which has been associated with heart disease and vascular cognitive impairment, was 196, and his triglycerides were in the 300s. Now, these numbers were all very worrisome, but the most worrisome factor was the findings of his CT scan of his head. So he went into the CT scan room, and it was done rather quickly. The doctor came back and talked to him and told him that they had seen a lot of small white matter lesions and small strokes throughout his brain, and that he was a candidate to get an MRI 
of his brain so that they could have a clear picture of what was really going on. And they did that. Within a couple of hours, he had a brain MRI and they found expansive microvascular diseases, which is diseases of the small vessels of the brain. And he also had very small strokes that were of different ages. So it not it hadn't necessarily happened within the last few days, but they had happened over a very, very long time. The neurologist came in and uh, he conducted a cognitive testing on him. He did a Montreal cognitive assessment test at bedside, which is also called MOCA, and he scored 20 out of 30. And the deficits were mostly in his attention, visual-spatial skills, and his short-term recall or memory. All of this really worried him, and he was speaking with his family over the phone, and they were involved in this as well. And ironically, they thought that this was quite unexpected. And when he spoke in detail with his family, it was evident that he had recently reduced his work and he had made a lot of errors in his driving route and some other details of his job. And his supervisor had recently cut down on a lot of his responsibilities because uh, he, they were very concerned for his safety mm -hmm. and for the productivity of the company. According to the family, when the doctor spoke with the family, um, he had changed in the last couple of years. His demeanor, his behavior, his personality kind of changed. He wasn't the same guy. He was slower in his movements. He was slower in his thinking. He was less energetic. He would fall asleep on the couch whenever the TV was on, even when it was his favorite show. He had been very forgetful, and he preferred sitting in front of the TV rather than engaging in activities around the house. There was a time when he would fix things in the garage or chop wood outside or fix something around the house, mm -hmm. a broken door, you know, a broken oven, but it wasn't like that anymore. And he kind of looked more disheveled I and mean, he really couldn't care less about his environment anymore. So after all of this workup, he was told that he hadn't um, had an acute stroke and he didn't really need to come into the hospital but he was referred to a neurologist for managing his condition and he was referred to his primary care physician for managing his raging diabetes, his blood pressure and his cholesterol. And he was given some brochures about his condition and he was told that mm -hmm. you know he had vascular cognitive impairment and that there was really no treatment for this and that he needed to keep on taking his medication and try to eat healthy and exercise. Yeah, and this is extremely common. In fact, at least this person got some brochures and got a diagnosis. Uh, this proportionately larger number of people never get to this point. Because as you can see, I mean, the symptoms were light, they went, came and went away. Uh, most of the time in, in most hospitals, they would just consider that either a TIA, which is a transient ischemic attack, or just part of aging, and they would just pass it off. You're okay. There's some white matter lesions in your brain you know, follow up with your doctor, and that's that. And that's a universal thing we see. That's, that's something we see on a regular basis in, the, in hospitals. It's often not, di not diagnosed. And lesser versions of this are even more prominent and more prevalent and are never diagnosed, and, and nothing's done for them. And that's why we think that this vascular diseases of the brain that leads to vascular cognitive impairment, which is a vascular equivalent of MCI or mild cognitive impairment and vascular dementia are so common then and it's an epidemic that that we must address and we must talk about it and we must catch it early enough because that's at this stage that we can do something about this. Um, 
the other part of this I want to add a little more is that we see versions where a person changes in personality and 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 the way they uh, they hold themselves and how they speak the speed of spe uh, speech or prosody of speech or how they walk or a little bit of imbalance and nobody does anything about that they just call that aging but that's actually a vascular changes that presage and predict you know strokes and dementia that we must talk about and so we think that this is one of the most important topics that we must address that's not being addressed. Absolutely. So <clears throat> let's go ahead and start this conversation by defining what vascular dementia and vascular cognitive impairment are and the difference between the two. Mm -hmm. So vascular dementia is when cognitive capacity, be it memory, attention, visual spatial or processing, any of those are affected to the extent where the person's daily activities are affected to some extent, right? They can't do their finances as well. They can't drive as well. They can't, uh, you know, shop uh, on their own as well, or even answer phone calls. The ADLs, they call them, the activities of daily living. And by definition, that's dementia. But what makes it vascular is that the cause is not so much degenerative where the brain is shrinking because of some amyloid or some protein or some something else. But by the way, most of that is actually even driven by this. Exactly. We'll the talk about yeah. the, uh, the overlap between uh, neurodegeneration and the vascular uh, brain damage that, well, I, I, I don't want to give away no, too no, much. No, no, we need to, you know, kind of titillate and give some information that the driving forces even for degeneration right. is vascular. So, so that very defined line of separation between vascular cognitive impairment and neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's disease has been blurred yeah. recently. And so people have both uh, conditions that superimpose. I digress, continue. No, no, this is this is important. And and so when when... How it manifests with vascular dementia it varies. It uh, depends on where the lesion is. If it's a stroke in a particular area, if it's a language center, then, then that, that element is affected to the point where the person can't speak and think or understand language. If it's in a motor area, then it affects that area, plus thinking and, and so on and so forth. And, and, and as we describe the different types, you can see the variety and, and, and the uh, prevalence of, of this disease and how it manifests in so many different ways that you might actually recognize in people around you. Because we, we being neurologists, we're not too fun in parties. Uh, we see these small lesions manifest in these deficits that, that's kind of uh, you know, uh, telling that if they address that early enough, you can do something about it. So basically that's it. And now vascular cognitive impairment is never diagnosed. It's, it's cognitive deficits as a result of vascular disease, but not to the extent where dementia has set in, but just enough where they're having difficulty with some memories and stuff, but they can still do their daily activities. So is vascular cognitive impairment equivalent of mild cognitive impairment? Is it, is it a presage to vascular dementia? And is it safe to say that? It is, it is. Vascular cognitive impairment is the equivalent of MCI or mild cognitive impairment. Um, the differential is the amnestic and non-amnestic type. This is one of the non-amnestic type. I'll, uh, amnestic means memory only. Mm -hmm. And when you have a short-term memory only mild cognitive impairment, that's mostly a pre-Alzheimer's type. But anything beyond that uh, varies. And this is the vascular type. And, and we see this in such great prevalence. And here's the amazing thing. 
We see it in greater prevalence in certain populations. We see it in greater prevalence in certain regions. I mean, something of that distinction, that, that prevalence should be talked about more. Right. But we're not because, because it, 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 most healthcare providers think it's a heavier lift. And they wait till the disease manifests. They wait till the full-blown stroke is on, uh, at hand. They wait till the dementia is fully manifest, and then they give something like Aricept or something of that nature. In fact, those have very little effect on vascular dementia, if at all. Absolutely. So you can develop vascular cognitive impairment or vascular dementia after conditions like strokes or any condition that damages the arteries in the brain, such as high blood pressure or diabetes or cholesterol, and we'll go over all of that. Yeah. Let's discuss the epidemiology. You actually touched on it as well. Um, so vascular cognitive impairment and dementia are among the most common causes of dementia after Alzheimer's disease. It's the second leading cause of <clears throat> dementia, and it comprises approximately 15 to 20% of clinically diagnosed dementia in North America and in Europe. In some Asian and developing countries, it can be as high as 30% of the dementia cases. And there's a large subsection of this population that has Alzheimer's pathology that strongly aligns with increasing severity of cognitive impairment and dementia. So you see both vascular damage and Alzheimer's-like pathology in the brain. And, and we think that these numbers are understate, uh, understated because we think that if, if they're assuming that you have to have only a stroke or vascular disease, um, and, and then it's called it's considered vascular dementia. Then it's it's an under underrepresentation because we think that underlying even a lot of the, the degenerative cases like Alzheimer's is vascular disease, and we were beginning to understand that more and more now with better tools, which is well, in many ways it's almost a, a an opportunity for us to expand our understanding of prevention of these kind of you know, uh, cognition-related diseases. Because if we are able to manage vascular health in someone, then we can definitely slow down the progression of, uh, of this, this pathogenesis. <clears throat> Let's talk about the different types of vascular dementia because there's not one. And it's related to how one comes to this, to this disease. So uh, under the umbrella of vascular cognitive impairment and uh, vascular dementia, you have mild neurocognitive disorders, which is vascular cognitive impairment, and then you have proper vascular dementia. And there are basically four different um, uh, conditions or subtypes uh, that are related to this. You have um, post-stroke dementia, which means the kind of memory loss that people tend to have after they have a stroke. Or cognition in general, for that matter. Correct, yeah. correct. And this is usually related to damage to the arteries, uh, either in you know multiple parts of the brain, depending on where the stroke happened, or sometimes you actually have a very strategic stroke in one part of the brain. Like, like the thalamus. Correct. So if you have a small stroke in the thalamus, and that's the powerhouse of the brain, suddenly people develop uh, memory problems without having any other vascular lesions in the brain. It could present itself as only memory and cognitive problems, or it could be associated with other signs and symptoms as well related to what part of the brain is damaged. So for example, somebody can start having, you know, paralysis in part of their body, weakness of a limb, sensory loss, loss of speech, 
you know, uh, trouble swallowing or any damage to our understanding of language, uh, depending on what side of the brain is involved. And then the second type is subcortical vascular ischemia. And that is something that is not very well defined. And it happens to quite a lot of people with poorly vascular, uh, poorly controlled vascular risk factors. And, and very much underdiagnosed. Um, and they just say person has white matter disease, they have uh, vascular disease, and that's it. That's, that's the only report you see usually is in the radiology uh, room and not beyond that. Yeah. And so, um, so basically subcortical means like it's below the, the cortex. cortex. Uh, so these are lesions that are in the deep white matter areas of the brain and it usually involves very very small blood vessels and these are these can be as small as less than 0.1 millimeters in diameter um, and depending on the type of pathology that you see it can cause um, you know cognitive impairment and then the third one is multi-infarct um, dementia multi-infarct dementia refers to the type of dementia that is caused by a series of small strokes. And this could include TIAs, which are, you know, small little, um, you know, focal deficits uh, that usually go away and accumulation of blood vessel damage over time. So it can be, um, you know, small little uh, strokes that occur over a stretch of a period of time. Yeah, yeah. Lacunes as well. Right. Little holes that happen. Right. Yeah. And then we have mixed dementia. And you're very passionate yeah. about the mixed dementia. And you see it quite often in your clinic. And I do. I, I do too. And, and I diagnose a lot of people with mixed dementia, although by by standard definition, it would they wouldn't call it mixed dementia, but I think it is. And, and I think that, that that diagnosis will change. When I see vascular disease and degenerative disease together, I call it mixed dementia. And I think that category is much more common than people know and, and much more common than it's diagnosed. And at this point, they only diagnose the mixed component when there's degeneration, which means the brain is shrinking, especially the temporal lobe and, and you know, uh, 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 regions that are associated with a particular type of dementia and a big stroke or a, a, a strategic stroke. But I think that if you have a significant white matter disease, if you have multi multiple uh, infarcts, along with the, the, the degenerative, that should also be a uh, mixed dementia. And that is almost ubiquitous. There is not a single day of clinic that I don't see several mixed dementias. Yeah. Um, yet, and, and it's not uh, reported as often. So let's talk about, we talked about what a vascular uh, the dementia as a result of a stroke would be. It uh, depends on location of stroke. Yes. But the subcortical is also interesting. Right. Um, the subcortical uh, strokes are usually, uh, they usually have some slowness. They call it bradykinesia, uh, which means slowness in walking. Sometimes there's some weakness, one side more than the other. There's often urinary incontinence. Mm. Now, uh, very, very often there's urinary incontinence and there's slowness in processing speed, slowness in thinking. Now, of course, there are times that where the back of the brain is affected more than the front, so that visual is affected more than thinking and vice versa. But in general, it's slowness, it's gait abnormalities and balance issues. There's sometimes lightheadedness and, um, and definitely some urinary incontinence, which is seen in, 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 in these cases. There are a couple of very um, interesting uh, types of subcortical. You have the Binswagner's and the cadassal that you want to, you might want to yeah, expand so, so, on. Yeah, um, so it's, uh, it stands for 
um, cerebral autosomal dominant arteriopathy with subcortical infarcts and leukencephalopathy. Somebody Thank had goodness time to, yeah, exactly. for acronyms. Yeah, exactly. They couldn't distill this down to smaller, yeah. Yeah, so it's the most common form of hereditary stroke, um, and it is thought to be because of a mutation in the notch 3 gene on chromosome 19. It's not very common, but when people have this particular type of genotype, they start having small strokes very early in life, um, starting in their teenage years and during <clears throat> midlife. And over time, it can result in vascular dementia. Unfortunately, there's no treatment for it. And the most we can do in clinic is to manage vascular risk factors, especially blood pressure yeah. and, and cholesterol. They're, they're also associated with migraines and headaches? Correct, yes, it is associated with migraine and headaches. Um, and um, over time, you know, most people, especially those with uncontrolled vascular risk factors, tend to have a lot of disability with, Correct. This, with this condition. I want to make sure that those people who have headaches and migraines uh, don't get scared. It's the relationship is if they have cadastral, they have migraines and headaches. It's not the other way where if you have migraines, you're going to have strokes and cadastral. So that, that relationship should be clear. And Binswagner is basically significant white matter disease. Correct. Binswagner usually seen with people who have chronic uncontrolled hypertension. Yeah. And obviously, you know, old age or as, as we all get older, our arteries become more and more frail. And so it has, it is usually seen, um, you know, at, at, at the, uh, you know, for in people who are 65 and above and have uncontrolled vascular risk factors. I think we also have to mention amyloid angiopathy here um, because it does fall under the category of subcortical um, dementia. It does. I mean, angiopathy is amyloid deposition. Amyloid is the protein that people talk about in Alzheimer's, but now we know that it's that relationship with Alzheimer's is there, but it's not as strong as people thought. It's just a protein that accumulates more in some people, but definitely in aging in general. And if there's a lot of it, they also tend to bleed. They have these little micro bleeds uh, because of the amyloid accumulation uh, as, as you get older. In fact, that's why People who live long enough, they have more amyloid, they have more hemorrhagic strokes, and you see this disease. Um, and But if you have an amyloid angiopathy, which is a disease specifically with amyloid buildup in the brain and subsequent vascular disease and some subsequent microvascular disease and hemorrhages, which is bleeds, mm -hmm. then they have dementia and cognitive decline and, and quite a bit of the, uh, um, uh, impairment. Absolutely. So these are some of the categories. We didn't want to get too wonky in this, but but I think we already did. So, But it's important because you can see there are so many different ways that it manifests, and it's so common. And and majority of these are not diagnosed. A radiologist calls it vascular disease on the MRI or white matter disease, and it's just recorded somewhere, and people don't do anything about it. And, and there is a lot to be done for much of these uh, conditions, especially when it's at the vascular cognitive impairment stage or early stages. Now we're going to move on to some of the signs and symptoms of vascular dementia. And they can be varied. There oh. can be, there, there, there's so many different ways that this condition uh, presents itself. And I think part of the reason why doctors, um, emergency room physicians, especially primary care physicians are not very comfortable diagnosing this and they really don't know what to do with it is because of the variability of its presentation. So it can be as benign as confusion yes. or being a bit slow and tired 
or for example balance problems balance problems or falls a lot of individuals come into the clinic complaining about falls and you know primary care physicians do all kinds of testing and then they send them to neurologist and then when they come into our clinic we do an mri of the brain and we see these big white patches in the subcortical area and we do memory testing and cognitive testing on them and then voila that's it that's yeah. vascular cognitive impairment Sometimes it can be tremors. Vascular uh, Parkinsonism is the kind of tremor or inability to move when um, when people have when people have uh, you know damage to the areas of the brain that are responsible for movement and for uh, balance. And so we see that quite often too. That could be one of the signs. Uh, trouble paying attention and focusing. Um, trouble organizing your thoughts and coming up with a complex conversation, um, having a sense of, of paranoia or changes in one's mood and emotions. It's very common for people to start having symptoms of dementia and, uh, sorry, depression and anxiety as well. Correct. And vascular cognitive impairment. Especially the subcortical type. Um, very common association with the depression and anxiety and in, in, in the subcortical variety. Uh, so basically, it could manifest any possible way depending on the, the dominant vascular territory that's affected. But, it, but cognition should be affected as well, meaning ability to think. And, and, and we see this, and you'll see this, and you'll recognize this in some people where there's a change in their personality. There's a change in their prosody. There's a change in their gait. There's a slowness. That's a sign of vascular disease. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it can happen uh, very slowly over a long period of time, but there are situations where you actually see the onset of vascular dementia right away after a major stroke. Yeah. And so so it's important for us to be able to categorize it properly. There's, there's a phenomenon called stepwise de decrement where there's a small little decrement, and then a few months later, there's another little decrement. It could be, it could be the balance. All of a sudden, you they wake up one morning and the balance is off, and then a few weeks or months later, all of a sudden, there's their weakness or numbness on one side. Those are small enough where the person doesn't think that it warrants, uh, you know, uh, evaluation, that it warrants hospitalization. But guess what? Those are all predictive of future uh, bigger strokes, future decline. And, and those stepwise declines that you see physically are also affecting cognition the same way. The cognitive process is uh, going down as well, but they're not aware of it. And if it's slow enough, even the family is not aware of it. That's true. Yeah. That's true. All right, should we jump on, on uh, the causes of vascular cognitive yes. impairment and discuss that? Yeah. All right, so anything that <clears throat> damages brain's blood vessels and it reduces their ability to supply our brain with the amount of nutrition and oxygen that it needs to perform optimally is a cause for vascular cognitive impairment. What are some of the common conditions that lead to vascular dementia? Um, narrowing or chronic damage to brain blood vessels. And these can be, uh, you know, they, they have different um, uh, they have different definitions based on what kind of blood vessels they involve. So we've heard about the term atherosclerosis. Mm -hmm. Atherosclerosis essentially 
points to damage to large arteries, whether it's because of plaque accumulation or because of the damage of the inner linings of the artery leading to plaque accumulation. Then we have arteriosclerosis, which affects the smooth muscle walls of smaller blood vessels and penetrating arterioles. Mm -hmm. Then we have cerebral amyloid angiopathy, which is, you know, we talked about it a little bit earlier, and it's because of accumulation of beta amyloid protein, predominantly in very small arteries and capillaries that go deeper in the center of the brain. So that means that those smaller capillaries are weak and they burst and they bleed. So you see these little bleeds around those areas. That's right. There's still not a very strong consensus whether to classify Alzheimer's disease with cerebral amyloid angiopathy related vascular injury as pure Alzheimer's or mixed Alzheimer's disease or vascular cognitive impairment. So it's almost like a spectrum. You, know, you have pure neurodegenerative conditions, and then you have new de neurodegeneration with amyloid angiopathy, and then you have more prominent vascular conditions in certain dementias. So, you know, it's it's almost like a spectrum. What, what are your thoughts about no, that? No, no, absolutely. I, and, and it's important to know that it's a spectrum. It's not one monosyllabic uh, thing or one, uh, so the spectrum nature, but the underlying, the three... Um, elements. I don't want. I want to. Call, don't, don't want to call it the three horsemen. There's four horsemen. The, the, is blood pressure, cholesterol, diabetes. I agreed. Yes. Um, those are the three dominant things that we must. Have. Now, I want to make sure that we kind of are a little more proactive. It's not significant blood pressure that you think. It's actually lower than you think. And and the same thing with diabetes and cholesterol. Right. Absolutely. So, um, and then um, we talked about strokes causing blockage of brain arteries and also brain hemorrhage. Sometimes yes. brain, small brain hemorrhages, especially well, a larger one too. Any condition that damages uh, the arterial wall can result in vascular cognitive impairment. The risks, you touched on it right now. The risks are obviously they're modifiable and non-modifiable yeah. risk factors. The non-modifiable risk factors, the number one is age. As people age, because the arteries... Uh, they become more frail and because of just the hemodynamic flow of blood causing damage to the inner um, areas of the arteries, make them prone to vascular damage. Um, the other non-modifiable risk factor in very smaller percentage of population are the uh, you know, genetic conditions yeah. like Hadassel or maybe amyloid angiopathy yeah. that could be related to some genetic and patterns And some as mitochondrial well. diseases that also affect. Right, but it's very important for people to know that that's a very, very, very small chunk of population exactly. that have those kind of, you know, very strong genetic risk factors for these kind of conditions. But for the most part, it's modifiable. Yeah. What are some of the modifiable risk factors? Their history of having blood pressure. Blood pressure is one of the major risk factors for vascular cognitive impairment. And it can be, you know, a reason for having other vascular diseases like stroke, heart disease, cardiomyopathy, heart failure, and everything else that actually globally affects cognition too. I, I want us to pause here with blood pressure. You've heard us say this quite a bit. If you even suspect you might have some episodes of blood, high blood pressure, even if you thought it was a white coat syndrome or the fact that you were stressed, nope, check your blood pressure regularly. To keep a, uh, a log of the blood pressure, especially early morning blood pressures because of cortisol going up and high, and then maybe later in the evening. Be on top of it. We, we are, all of us, especially us physicians, we're penny-wise, dollar-foolish. The blood pressure uh, question is a one of the most important factors in your health. Right. So keep an eye on that as uh, and have a blood pressure machine uh, in, in your home. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. The other one is diabetes or pre-diabetes for that matter. High glucose levels can damage blood vessels throughout your body and definitely in the brain as well, along with damaging other structures in our neurovasculature, it causes damage to the arteries as well, and it increases the risk for vascular dementia. As a matter of fact, you and I wrote that paper about vascular dementia and its risk factors in diabetes is pretty much on top. The the paper was interesting because we looked at 50-year-olds, not even older population, and we looked at cognition in pre-diabetics, and cognitive state was lower in pre-diabetics, even in the younger population. Absolutely, Yeah. 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 Then the next one is high cholesterol, um, and especially having um, elevated levels of LDL or low density lipoprotein has been associated with vascular cognitive impairment. And, um, you know, depending on whether somebody can change that with lifestyle or medication if needed, it's critically important. And these shouldn't be left alone till later in life. These are things that we need to keep an eye on very, very early because usually what happens is people live with these risk factors for a very long time and it continues to cause damage to the arteries in the brain. Um, And and we're getting better tools to continuously monitor these. With glucose, we have the devices. We're not saying people should go and get those, but with blood pressure, we definitely have tools that can give you a better sign of it and be your own advocate. I know I'm, I'm jumping ahead of myself, but I'm, uh, this, I'll perseverate on this and I'll repeat this uh, repeatedly. Uh, and, and, that, 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 and the point is, be on top of it yourself. If your physician is not doing it for you, um, and if they're not following up, fire your physician and get a new physician. Smoking is another uh, risk factor. Uh, It directly damages our blood vessels and it increases the risk for development of atherosclerosis or plaques in our arteries and other circulatory diseases and leads to vascular dementia. Obesity, being overweight, is a very uh, well-known risk factor for vascular diseases in general and can uh, increase the risk for for vascular dementia. Um, Some of the other conditions that are not very well known are atrial fibrillation or arrhythmias of the heart. You know, if there is any abnormal heart rhythm, the upper chamber of the heart begins to beat rapidly and irregularly out of coordination with the rest of the heart's uh, chambers, and it increases the risk of strokes because sometimes during the, you know, the process of arrhythmias, blood pools in the heart, and then small little clots form and they are driven into the brain and it causes subcortical uh, strokes leading to vascular cognitive impairment. So if somebody has atrial fibrillation, it needs to be checked and treated as soon as possible. Um, obvious, I mean, this is an obvious risk factor and we talked about it, but strokes in yeah. general are a risk for having vascular dementia and vascular cognitive impairment. Aneurysms, both genetically, because we're uh, a significant proportion of population is has a tendency to have aneurysm, which has this bubbling of the arteries in the brain. In fact, we know by number where is the greater prevalence of aneurysms in the brain. And what happens when you have a high blood pressure again, it, it bursts and then that you have a bleed and that's a stroke and, and with that comes cognitive impairment and dementia and other deficits. Or you can get a, a, um, uh, a tear in the wall of the artery as a result of Um, exercise or as a result of trauma to the neck, especially carotid uh, arteries, where there is a um, uh, damage to the wall, and that creates um, a a common source for clot to go to the brain. So those are some of the more common things that we see. Um, Recently, there's been um, some research on the relationship between 
the apolipoprotein E, APOE4 specifically, um, it's uh, the fact that it um, predisposes the accumulation of amyloid beta protein in cerebral blood vessels, and it's been associated with amyloid angiopathy. It is a risk factor for the development of vascular dementia later on. But the interesting thing is, so APOE4 is a risk factor for vascular dementia, but it is not considered as a risk factor for coronary artery disease. And so for people who have copies of APOE4, it is even more important for them to take care of their vascular health to prevent vascular dementia. All right. Any unusual cases that you've seen in your clinical practice? Lots of unusual cases. Um, the reason we brought we're gonna, we wanted to talk about the unusual cases is twofold. One is uh, uh, when when people see these situations, they don't think that it's a vascular phenomenon. For example, TGA, transient global amnesia, where all of a sudden a person has memory disorders. Um, um, uh, antrograde memory disorders for less than 24 hours. They can't, they don't know where they are, what, what, why they were here, what was happening. They remember their family and stuff, but th th there's a significant component of memory uh, disorder, which then abates. We did a study on this and, and we found that there's a strong vascular connection to TGA. That's one. The other more common element is visual changes. These, uh, you lose your vision, there's a curtain coming down or diminished, uh, diminution in vision. Now, all visual problems does not, uh, does not equate to vascular disease. But if you have a visual change, especially if you're past age 50 or so, then you should get a vascular workup, making sure that that's not the cause. And that's a very common manifestation that's overlooked. Other things that happen is the numbness in one side of the body that comes and goes the TIAs, transient ischemic attacks, these are not unusual. So I wouldn't put them under unusual, but undetected, where you have a numbness or a weakness on one side. Yeah, a lot of times it's just weakness and numbness as a result of fatigue or something of that nature. But they could be transient ischemic attacks, a stroke that, that persists for a few hours, then goes away, or even a few minutes and goes away. If you catch it at that level, you've just significantly increased your chance of surviving the next stroke or avoiding the next stroke. So if you suspect you're having a problem, there's a facial droop, you have difficulty speaking, some visual changes, numbness or sensory changes that go away, definitely uh, get it evaluated. That's what's important. The other kind of unusual uh, cases are more of interest uh, academically, you know, you, language centers being affected uh, with unusual manifestation or visual centers being affected where all of a sudden one side of the world uh, just starts uh, disappearing. Not visually disappearing, but cognitively disappearing. That's, you know, the, that's remarkable. Or the, the really bad one, which is the locked-in syndrome, where there's a, per a person who has a vascular lesion or stroke in their, in their pons or in their basal artery, in the, in the brainstem, and they're basically paralyzed from the eyes down and in the past, they, they thought that person was dead, but they're locked in. Absolutely. And in those cases, we take all heroic measures possible because we want to make sure that this person is not left in that state, that they uh, we do whatever necessary, even if at a, at a risk to the person, to see if we can, you know, the clot is removed. That's important. Um, again, the time to removal is important. If you want uh, the medication uh, the, that breaks through the clot, as soon as you have symptoms, go to the emergency room because those first three to four hours matter. Mm -hmm. And even after that, 
um, vascular surgeons and vascular um, uh, um, neurologists can go in and retrieve the clot within the first 24 hours or so. So time matters. Time is brain. Aisha always says, time is brain. So uh, if you detect the symptoms, go evaluate, get evaluated. It's okay if it's a false read, but if it's not, you've just saved yourself. And we talked about that in uh, the part one of our stroke yes. uh, podcast. Uh, so if anybody's interested in learning more about stroke, we um, recommend that they listen to that. As far as um, solutions are concerned, so for vascular cognitive impairment and dementia specifically, there is no treatment. And the treatment is essentially prevention. Yeah. And um, Dean touched on uh, you know, primary prevention and treatment of stroke. So it can be primary prevention, which is addressing vascular risk factors during midlife and throughout life and making sure that you know, the factors that we mentioned are almost a checklist on a regular basis, not just waiting to see your doctor you know, every three months or six months or once a year, but the things that you can monitor at home on a regular basis. And also detection, detection in the community. Um, it's it's very difficult to note somebody's movements and thinking and language change, their energy levels change. And because, um, you know, a, a lot of times frailty has been synonymous with aging, some very prominent features of vascular cognitive impairment could be lost. So say, for example, if somebody is less mobile or if they have had a few more falls, or for example, if they start having mild tremors all of a sudden that come and go, these are things that need to be checked and it could indicate some vascular damage to the brain. And then we have secondary uh, prevention, which means when people have been detected to have vascular damage in the brain, whether it's small strokes or you know white matter disease, secondary prevention essentially means addressing and treating the risk factors, blood pressure, cholesterol, diabetes. If someone is smoking, they need to be treated for that and they need to be rehabilitated for that. Um, if someone has you know other vascular issues that uh, need to be addressed right away, that's it's very, very important. And of course, lifestyle is critical. You know, we, uh, we always talk about the diet and exercise. So say, for example, physical activity has been studied extensively in research. And we know that when people are involved in regular physical activity, they have lower risk of vascular cognitive impairment for, for reasons that we just discussed. Keeping our cholesterol in check, specifically LDL. Um, there's a consensus of multiple lines of research and major medical organization that cholesterol has been associated with vascular cognitive impairment. And when it comes to diet, we know that a healthy dietary pattern can significantly reduce uh, risk of vascular cognitive impairment and vascular dementia. And the dietary patterns that have been studied are the Mediterranean diet or the DASH diet or a plant-based diet with focus on eating vegetables, fruits, whole grains, legumes, nuts and seeds, and reducing saturated fats, reducing sodium, reducing meat, refined carbohydrates, sugary sweetened beverages, and ultra-processed foods. And if someone has high cholesterol and it can't be brought down with lifestyle, it's very important for them to consider cholesterol-lowering medication if uh, it's needed to reduce the risk of stroke and heart attacks that could lead to vascular dementia later on. Now, uh, the important point here is that as much as we think that MCI or mild cognitive impairment in pre-Alzheimer's is reversible and treatable at that stage. 
Vascular cognitive impairment is exponentially more treatable and, and, and reversible in the sense that, yes, the vascular damage is done, but if you catch it at that point, you reverse the underlying causes, which is blood pressure, diabetes, cholesterol, all that, the brain will have an incredible ability to re, re, reconnect, revascularize re, uh, the, the neurons that are damaged, other parts of the brain take over. It is much more amenable to improvement than any of the other dementing causes. And it's much more prevalent, yet it's not never diagnosed early. And what I, the, one of the things we hope to do is for the community to kind of recognize early on the signs, the slowness, the, the slowness in speech, the change in, 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 in those characteristics. And if they find some findings on the MRI or CT of scan of the brain accidentally or incidentally as a result of some other, and, and, the, and, and the radiologist or the, your primary care physician passes it off as, oh, some vascular disease, some lesions, some lacunes. No, that's the time where you can make a difference and life-altering difference, especially in this case especially in the general population where this is never spoken about. Absolutely. So as far as prevention is concerned, um, both you know in the realm of public health and highlighting the urgency of the situation and making a plan, I think the first and foremost is education and awareness, which you know we hope that this uh, serves. Um, awareness of what it is, what it looks like, how to detect it, and, uh, you know, for individuals, for them to readily identify their modifiable and non-modifiable yeah. risk factors. That's very critical. And then at a societal level, uh, public health information on how to manage midlife vascular risk factors is one of the best steps towards prevention of vascular cognitive impairment. And coming back before we get to the questions, coming back to Jim, um, it's remarkable how his life has changed. Right. What's, remember, the, the data, I don't have, I, I never want to quote something that I don't have the paper in front of me. It's been a while. I think the, the data said that the unhealthiest working population are truck drivers. Right, yeah, yes. By far. And um, imagine changing the, uh, the amount of mobility that a person would have and the kind of food they would eat and stress, sleep, that population would benefit the most. And Jim definitely benefited with simple measured changes. And uh, the, this, this episode was scary enough that, uh, I, uh, that it motivated him to make those changes and his life has changed profoundly. And we hope that this will be the case for a lot of people. I mean, he's uh, 56 years old, now 57, and, and he's got significant amount of years ahead of him. And, and, and yet, if this wasn't addressed, this would have rapidly went on to become dementia and rapidly uh, gone to become a um, fulminant stroke. Um, that's where we are now. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's take a couple of questions. Uh, thank you for being patient with us here. Um, let's see. Um, Diane is asking specifically about arrhythmias, and she says, mm -hmm. what about occasional heart palpitations? So say, for example, someone doesn't have frank um, you know, arrhythmia, but you know, sometimes here and there. What about that? So arrhythmias are not all equal, but they also have different manifestations. So uh, that could be a completely different talk. For example, bradycardia. Uh, that's a the most common arrhythmia as you get older is bradycardia, which means slowing down of heart rate. Now, by itself, it shouldn't be too big of a problem. Athletes have slow heart rate, 
But if you're developing slow heart rate as you get older, that means that's a pathologic condition. That's why those, um, one of the most common reasons for falls, lightheadedness, head trauma is bradycardia and slowness of heart. So that will have its own consequences in different ways. Or over time, diminished blood flow to the brain, which would cause same similar kind of Absolutely. phenomena. Absolutely. There have been some studies that show that heart rate variability, yeah. so for heart rate not being constant and changing and vacillating, has been associated with some level of cognitive, vascular cognitive impairment. Now, this is not to worry you because a lot of times when people have you know, significant heart rate variability, they tend to have other vascular risk factors too. Uh, so don't take it lightly, mm -hmm. talk to your doctor about it, keep a very close eye on it and make sure that it's, it's something that you're aware of that is brought up and that your doctor screens you for it on a regular basis. Thank you for that question. And nowadays you can actually, uh, with, well, with the phone, iPhone, you, that tells you if you have arrhythmias. Right. Uh, the other one is ventricular arrhythmia, which is the ventricles are the, the big muscular part, lower part of the heart, which pump the blood either um, uh, to the lungs or to the rest of the body. Mm -hmm. If there's arrhythmia there, definitely that can also cause um, strokes and, and disease as well. Rebecca has a very good question. She says, how do you tell your friends when you suspect they are in grave danger? So she, assuming that you're um, talking about the development of cognitive impairment, and I'm assuming that it's related to vascular issues uh, in this conversation. How do you tell them? Yeah, this is a beautiful question. It's, um, it's, it's about how do you uh, become, how do you develop a reciprocal vulnerability? Oh, that's a good concept, reciprocal vulnerability. Um, well, the, 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 the term actually uh, says it. I mean, usually we can't intervene in other people's lives because it's looked upon as a threat or as a, um, uh, but, but, if, but if you've established that kind of a relationship, and, and even if you haven't before, one can, by having those conversations, by having those, there's a great book, a Courageous Conversation. And I think that's one of the most beautiful and most important, people talk about service all the time. The path to service to me starts with ability to listen and communicate. Other than that, it's just imposition. Uh, you, even your service is imposition. Uh, uh, so uh, that relationship has to be established. And, and, and this community, I love this conversation because I, we think that every one of you are uh, those warriors of light that can actually enlighten people. But it starts with listening and understanding and being vulnerable and discussing and, and openness. Um, and and that's, that's where it starts. Anything short of that, that work that needs to be done a priori is going to be a threat to the people, to the person in front of you. Um, uh, and that's, th that's something that I would like at some point to discuss even more detail because I think that every time people come in this community, we want to be vulnerable with you guys um, because then it's about trust. You know, one of my favorite books um, is Stephen Covey's book, Speed of Trust. There's a lot of books out there. I've read a hundred leadership books and self-improvement books and all these things. But speed of trust is important because it's about relationships and, and it has to do with trust and trusting integrity and capacity. But it's actually trust, right? Trust. And, and, uh, and if, you, if we expect you to do what we say, you have to trust us. And we have, you have to trust us with our integrity, which is vulnerability. And you have to trust us with our capacity, which, which is ironically also vulnerability, where we don't know something. We're not like those people who say, oh, just make up something and say it. Say the data is not available. So 
that I'm taking that point a little further because like I said, we're going to have lots of coaches that come out of this venue and lots of community leaders and, and every conversation should be based on data, meaningful data and conversations that are courageous. Thank you so much for asking that point be be because every one, I mean, every one of us know 10 other people who have a risk Absolutely. and they don't know about it. That's so true. Kathy says, what medication do you recommend for someone that has elevated lipoprotein and an APOE4 positive? So they're APOE4 positive. So there's no medication that directly affects lipoprotein and APOE4. Um, lipoprotein is a type of cholesterol that all also has been associated with vascular uh, damage. And APOE4 uh, points to a condition where our body is unable to metabolize lipids appropriately. And it has been associated with Alzheimer's disease and cardiovascular disease um, um, as well, to a certain extent. Now, medications would only come into play if there are vascular risk factors that are indirectly related with these two. So say, for example, treating high LDL. If somebody has familial LDL and they're trying their best with diet and, you know, cutting out meat and dairy and sources of saturated fats and they're on a whole food plant-based diet, but still their LDL is low, I think they're a great high. candidate, sorry, high, yeah. if their LDL is high, they're a great candidate for taking medications, of course, with, you know, uh, so under the supervision of their uh, primary care physician. It's something that you just can't ignore. You really have to attend to it because lower LDL has been associated with better brain health, both lower risk of stroke and uh, dementia. Um, and and the same goes for other risk factors like high blood pressure. You know, treating high blood pressure over a long period of time with lifestyle is important, but if under short period of time, if it's high, and if you don't do anything about it, that could lead to vascular cognitive uh, damage as well. Would you say that people with APOE4 have to be a little more aggressive with the lowering of um, uh, lipids or LDL? Aggressive meaning what? I think lower numbers. Well, that's a that's a good question. We don't have any good evidence yes. for that. Um, I think everybody's given an optimal goal, and it's wonderful everyone to to reach that optimal goal. Um, do do people who do not have the APOE4 genotype have a little bit of leeway compared to those who do? I don't think we have enough evidence for that because when you look at vascular risk factors, sometimes they're not just one, they're multiple yeah. of them and it's a very complex picture yeah. um, that presents itself. But nonetheless, I think um, it is important for people who have APOE4 genotypes, whether it's one copy or two, to be very cognizant about their cholesterol and their lipid metabolism in general. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, Diane says, what are your thoughts on optimal day-to-day -day blood pressure and also LDL? So optimal day-to-day -day blood pressure, obviously, depending on what we do, our blood pressure varies, but it's important for us to check our blood pressure at least once a day. Mm -hmm. And, you know, note that down and have it with you whenever you go to your doctor's clinic. Um, and based on multiple, um, you know, papers and based on consensus, a normal blood pressure is a systolic of 120 and a diastolic of 80. If it creeps up above 130 for the systolic, the higher number, that is considered hypertension. And it could be mild, moderate, or severe hypertension, and it needs treatment. Um, as far as LDL goes, um, the normal number is 70. Um, if people don't have other vascular risk factors, 70 
to, you know, 100 is that range that is given, but there's almost a dose response relationship to LDL and cardiovascular disease. So the lower it is, the lower your cardiovascular risk factors, and the optimal would be 70 and lower. Kathy says her LDL is 131. That's high, Kathy. So you need to you need to consult with your primary care physician to discuss what options you have, and we'd be happy to, you know, help you with the lifestyle part of it. But I think if it's that high mm. and if you have other risk factors, you need to talk to your doctor about it right away. Mm -hmm. Tina says, can vascular impairment manifest itself as a loss of long-term memory? Uh, it can. Um, uh, as, as you know, a long, uh, because we've spoken about it so, so much, long-term memory is different than short-term memory, um, both as far as how it manifests, also as far as its anatomy. Long-term memory is stored much broader. So usually when you do see long-term memory, uh, it means that some other things have been affected as well. But the short answer is yes, you can see that, definitely. Well, this was wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the Brain Health Revolution podcast. I hope it was helpful. And I will see you guys very soon for our live Q&A session uh, in a couple of days. Yes. Have a wonderful day, guys. Thank you so much for joining have us. It was wonderful day. hanging out with you. Bye.